Just do it. Okay, what company has that slogan? Nike. Nike. Everybody knows that. This is a very successful advertising slogan. In fact, it was rated one of the top five advertising slogans for the entire 20th century. Wow. This slogan has actually been enshrined in the Smithsonian Institution. I'm not making this up. Just do it. Just do it. It's led Nike as a corporation to $24 billion of profit a year. That's pretty good. It's got superstar spokespeople spouting the slogan like Michael Jordan. This is, this is a good sports slogan, isn't it? It's a good slogan for a company that sells athletic gear because if you've ever served on a team, a sports team, you know what it's like to have the voice of your coach ringing in your ears as you take the field or the hardwood or the track and uh, you know the last words you heard were, go do it, okay? No more talk. Let's go do it. Just do it. In fact, this slogan is even heard in non-sports circles, uh, if you're a person who's given to daydreaming and not taking action when you should be taking action, a friend may have told you in the past, oh, just do it, just do it. So oh, you're a high school student who's sitting in the cafeteria, lunch after lunch after lunch, telling your buddies how you'd like to take out that good-looking girl in algebra class, and finally they get tired of hearing it from you and say, oh, just do it, okay, just ask her out, just do it. Or you're, you're a person who's talked about going on a diet and losing 20 pounds, but you've been researching the right diet. You've looked into the South Beach diet, and you've researched the paleo diet and the seafood diet. You seafood, you eat it. And, and finally, your friends tell you, enough researching, just do it. Just do it. Or, or maybe you've been married for some years, and you've been promising your spouse, we're going to do a second honeymoon at some point. And you said that back at the five-year anniversary, and you toyed with the idea at the 10-year anniversary and at the 15-year anniversary, and if you bring home one more travel brochure, your spouse is going to throw it up in your face and say, let's just do it, okay? Let's do it. So let's just do it. This is the title that I'm giving to the passage of Scripture that we're going to study today in James chapter 1. So if you brought a Bible with you, would you turn with me to James 1? You got a Bible? Would you flash that for a second? Hold it up here? Great. If you got it on your iPad or your phone, that counts as well as long as you're not texting friends and looking up other stuff on your electronic devices instead of tuning into God's Word. We're going to take a look at James Chapter 1, this is the third installment in what's probably going to be about a 12-week series, verse by verse, through the epistle of James. James, the author of this epistle, as we've already learned, is an in-your-face kind of guy. James has no patience for people who claim to be Christ followers, but don't live like it. And so the theme of this epistle is, if you've got genuine faith, if you've got genuine faith, it's going to make a difference in your life. And if genuine faith is making a difference in your life, then you're going to make a difference in your world. And so the title for the series is Faith That Makes a Difference. Faith That Makes a Difference. And today, we're going to take a look at how this book, God's Word, the Bible, the role that it plays in producing faith that makes a difference in our lives. It's not enough to read the book. It's not enough to come to a weekend service and hear it taught in a sermon. It's not enough to gather with the community group and study it and discuss it. James says, just do it. Just 
do it. So in today's text, we're going to take a look at uh, three aspects of just doing God's word. Here's number one. If you haven't taken the outline from your program, I encourage you to do that right now and fill it in as we go. The first aspect of doing God's word, before you do it, you got to hear it. Okay, you can't put it into practice unless you've heard God speak to you. So point number one has to do with conditions for hearing God's word. Conditions for hearing God's word. If your Bible's open to James 1, we're going to begin at verse 19. Let me read a few uh, verses from this scripture today to you. My, my dear brothers and sisters, James writes, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that's so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Stop there. Don't you love verse 19? It looks like uh, something you would expect to see on a wall plaque. The middle of the verse, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become anger. Sounds like good advice for how to get along with other people, doesn't it? And it is. However, James is not giving it to us as advice for how to relate to other people. He's giving it to us as advice for how to relate to God's word. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, let me remind you of a Bible study principle that I've taught you before. In fact, if you pick up my four-book series, Bible Savvy, this is a principle that's reiterated through those four books. As you're reading God's word, you ought to be making observations. And one of the things you ought to be observing, you ought to be looking for, are repeating words or ideas. Okay, if you're reading a passage and something pops up two or three or four times, whether it's the very same word or at least the same idea, it should grab your attention. Okay, so with that in mind, look at the text again. Look at verse 21, middle of the verse. James says, humbly accept the word planted in you. Now drop down one verse to verse 22. Do not merely listen to the word. Okay, drop down to verse 23. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says. What do you think the theme is of this passage, friends? The word. Let me ask that one more time. At all four campuses, what do you think the theme of this passage is? The word. Whose word? Yeah, God's word. And so when the passage opens in verse 19 by saying everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, again, it's not advice on how to relate to other people. It's advice on how to relate to the Word, to God's Word. And it begins with conditions for hearing the Word. When you open the Bible, what are the conditions that have to be met if you're going to hear God speak to you? So let me give you three conditions right out of verse 19. And I'll start them all with the letter S, hopefully, to make them memorable. The first condition is this, schedule. Now take a look at verse 19. You see the word schedule there in the middle of the verse? No, you don't, because it's not there. Okay, just a test again. What, what you do see is everyone should be quick to listen. Everyone should be quick to listen. James is describing here an eagerness on our part to listen to God's word. I mean, you, you really, really, really want God to speak to you. This is a top priority in your life. Someone has said that the way you spell priority is T-I-M-E. T-I-M-E spells time. 
If something is a top priority for you, you schedule time for it. If soccer is a top priority, you schedule time for soccer. If shopping is a top priority, you schedule time for shopping. If hearing God's word is a top priority in your life, you schedule time in the Bible. You're quick to listen to God's word. So let me ask you today, are you scheduling time in the Bible? Now, that would include not only working your weekend schedule around being here, being at one of our four campuses every week so you could hear God's Word taught, but also scheduling time to participate in a community group where you study and discuss and apply God's Word. Not just being on the group's roster, by the way, but actually showing up at the group week in and week out. It would also mean scheduling time daily to read God's book. If this is a top priority and you're quick to listen. If you've been here for the last several weeks, you know that uh, on Easter weekend, we launched a Bible reading initiative. We said our goal is to get as many people reading the Bible on a daily basis as we possibly can. And so we've been passing out thousands of copies of this Bible reading schedule slash devotional put out by Scripture Union. If you don't have a copy yet, it's available at any one of our four campuses. Just ask for it. And if you'd rather have it electronically, you could go online and have it sent directly to your, to your PC or to your iPhone, and every day up pops the scripture you're to read for the day and a one-page commentary on it. And I would also encourage you to check out my blog at BibleSavvy.com because my goal there is to help you with the texts we're all reading together to gain some understanding, something you could apply to your life from that text. So one of the things I wrote this past week, if you went to the, to the blog... I said, you know, sometimes it helps to lower your expectations. Let me just say honestly up front that not every day will you get something scintillating out of God's Word. So if that discourages you, you've tried it and you've read a couple of passages and you you didn't get a whole lot out of it, let me just remind you, it's the long haul. Okay, it's the accumulative effect of reading God's Word day after day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year that finally shapes your life. So don't give up. Okay, don't give up, stick with it. Be quick to listen. Schedule time for the Bible. Second condition for hearing God's word. Go back to verse 19 of James 1, silence. What phrase comes after quick to listen? Call it out. Slow to speak. Okay, if you want God to speak to you as you read the Bible, you got to shut up. You've got to stop talking. In fact, you need to block out all extraneous noise in your life. You know, my wife says that she's impressed with me because I can go to a bustling coffee shop and actually get work done. So I could, you know, I could sit at a Starbucks and I could return emails. I could read. I could study there. I could bang out the outline for a sermon. And she says, I don't know how you do it with all that noise. Well, the fact of the matter is, I can usually do it. You know, as long as the noise is this uh, kind of blob of sound, you know, white sound coming at you, nothing sticking out, I could tune the whole thing out, but all it takes is for one person at the table next to me to have a piercing quality to their voice. You know, now you're tuned into that conversation. Or, Or Starbucks has now put on a CD of a retro Bob Dylan album, and I'm humming along with the tune, you know, and... Now I can't concentrate at all. 
And, and though I hate to admit it, my best work is done in a quiet environment. That's where I can focus. That's where there's no risk that I'll be distracted by competing noise. So do you want to hear God, God speak to you as you open his book? Try silence. Friends, get rid of the earbuds. <laughs> Grab your Bible before your kids get up in the morning or after you put them to bed at night. Close the door to the room you're reading in. Turn off the alerts on your smartphone. Silence. Here's the third condition, third S word for hearing God's word. Submission. Now, what do I mean by submission? Well, it's a willingness on our part to obey whatever God tells us to do. A willingness to obey whatever God, God tells us to do. James has a lot to say about submission in verses 19 to 21. Start with the last phrase of verse 19. You're quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Slow to becoming, let me remind you, James not talking about how to relate to other people. He's talking primarily here about how to relate to God's word. And he says, when you read it, don't get angry. Isn't that interesting? See, now be honest. Don't you get mad at some of the things you find in the Bible? Okay, doesn't it get your back up just a, a little bit? Don't you find some things objectionable? Don't you find yourself on occasion, occasion arguing with what the Bible teaches? You know, from time to time, I can see that sort of response in people's body language when I'm preaching at Christ Community Church. Now, you folks at the regional campuses, I can't see that, but I could see it in St. Charles. You know, if I touch on certain topics from the Bible, I could see a sprinkling of of defiant glares, or occasionally arms getting folded across chests. Some of you just did this really quick. <laughs> you know, on a rare occasion, someone actually getting up and walking out. It's not to use the restroom. You know, j just let me preach, for example, on money. Let me say from God's word that God owns it all. Every penny in your bank account. And so he asks you, as Scripture says, to bring back the first 10% of each paycheck and give it, return it to him for his work. You know, this is a test of whether or not you, you acknowledge his ownership over all of your life. And if that makes you mad, because it just got some of your dander up right now, as I said it. You know, God can keep his hand out of my pocket. Let me just remind you, it's not your pocket. It's his pocket that he's got his hand in. You know, what, what other topics? Well, let me talk about sexual sin. Whoa. You know, let, let, me, let me say that sleeping with a person you're not married to is sinful. Or dabbling in pornography. It's sinful. Homosexual behaviors. Sinful. You, know, you could feel walls go up. Just, just a side note here. That, that last one. Uh, homosexuality. Because it's, it's so, uh, the topic is so prevalent in our culture today. There's a lot of furor around it because of the, you know, the whole gay marriage deal. I, I want you to note that I said homosexual behaviors are sinful, not homosexual orientation. And I think it's really important to make that distinction here because you may, you may be getting mad at God for the wrong reason. See, the, the, the fact of the matter is you can get pulled in a certain direction, but it's not sinful until you act upon it. See, the orientation itself, the pull, 
is not what's sinful, it's the behavior, the acting upon. Let me use an example, totally different topic here. Alcoholism. Okay, how many of you grew up in a home where mom or dad struggled with alcohol? Okay, a lot of you. How many of you know that if you grew up in a home like that, there's a good chance that there's a similar tendency in your life? Okay, whether you picked it up by socialization or you picked it up because it's, it's in the genes, it's a physical weakness, there is a disposition toward it. Now, the disposition itself is not sin. Okay, it, it's the result of living in a fallen world. However, don't act upon the tendency. Because if, if you do and you get drunk, now the Bible calls that sin. You see the difference here. So let me say to you, if you struggle with homosexual urges, if you struggle with same-sex attractions, I'm glad you're here with the rest of us fallen human beings who are struggling with other things that are pulling us in a sinful direction because we're here to learn how to resist that pull. We're, learn, we're, we're learning how to walk in victory and to say no to the acting out upon those tendencies. You, you get it? So, so don't... yeah. Don't get mad at God for the wrong reason. Don't, don't get mad at God as if he creates people with certain tendencies and then he prohibits them from acting upon those, those tendencies that have come from God. No, actually, those tendencies are ones that have been corrupted by our fallenness. And I would say to you, if you act upon every sexual urge you feel, whether it's a homosexual urge or a heterosexual urge, your life's going to be a mess. Now, now, my explanation here perhaps has helped you understand what the Bible teaches on this subject. However, you might still be honked off that God's Word says no to certain sexual behaviors, which is why James says when you're reading the Bible, when you're hearing the Bible taught, don't become angry. Don't become angry. What other commands in God's Word might make you angry? Friends, it could be just about anything. Okay, you, you could be reading the Bible, uh, a passage that talks about the importance of hanging in a troubled marriage and working through a conflict, and uh, you're married to a jerk. You want out. And so it makes you angry what God's saying. Hang in there. Work at it. Okay, it could be the fact that God's Word says over and over again that we're, we're to care for the poor, and, and you're a bit ticked at that because you pay ginormous taxes for social programs. Why should you have to be personally involved? You're paying for the job to be done. You're upset. James says, don't become angry. Now, I could go on and on, but my point is this. If God's Word isn't occasionally raising your hackles, I mean, if you're not periodically running into Bible commands that are objectionable to you, you're just not paying attention, okay? But don't give in to knee-jerk reaction. Tell God that you're willing to submit to what his word teaches, even if it doesn't make sense to you, even if you don't like it. Because if you don't do this, if you don't practice submission, you'll encounter a, a couple of very negative consequences. The first is you'll stop hearing from God. You will stop hearing from God. And there will be times when you'll be desperate to hear from God or you'll need direction for your life. You'll need comfort and you'll open God's book and it just won't speak to you at all. And it's because you've made a habit of turning a deaf ear to God. There's so much earwax built up that you can't hear him speak anymore. The, the second negative consequence of not submitting to what he says, if you keep saying 
yes to things that God says no to, James says all sorts of garbage is going to build up in your life. Look again at the verses I read to you a moment ago. Verse 20, middle of the verse. Human anger, okay, resisting God's word, does not produce the righteousness, the right kind of life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that's so pre- prevalent and humbly accept. That's the submissive spirit, the teachable spirit. Humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. So doing God's word begins with being able to hear God's word. Three conditions for hearing it. Uh, time in your schedule, silence so that you can listen, and submission to what you come across. Number two, the second aspect of doing God's word has to do with a commitment to obeying it, a commitment to obeying God's word. And this is kind of a continuation of what James has been saying about submission, but he takes it a little bit further in verse 22. Look at verse 22. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Verse 22 begins, do not merely listen to God's word. Now, friends, there's nothing wrong with listening to God's word. James is a big fan of listening to God's word. That's one of the ways you take in God's word. But but James is warning you, don't stop with listening. Don't, Don't be guilty of merely listening. In fact, he says if you're merely listening to the Bible, you're deceiving yourself. What does he mean by that? Well, he means that if you mistakenly assume that just because you've gone to church and you've heard a Bible-based sermon, or just because you filled in the blanks of the study guide that your community group is preparing for the week, or just because you've taken out that scripture union schedule and read the Bible five out of seven days, don't assume that that makes you a faithful Christ follower. James says, don't, don't, don't deceive yourself. Don't kid yourself. Don't be like the guy who thinks he's an auto mechanic because he went to the library and checked out a book on the topic and read it. Okay? Or, or the woman who thinks she's in great shape because she's watched a Pilates video. Okay? Don't, don't deceive yourselves, James says. Getting good instruction is important, but only if you're putting into practice what you're learning. You know, that's how it is with God's word. Look at the last line of verse 22. Instead of merely listening, James says, we've got to do what it says. Do what it says. That word do in our English translation is an action verb. But interestingly, in the original Greek text of this verse, what James literally writes is, become a doer. And doer is a noun. And there are a couple of reasons why I like James' noun, doer, better than our English translation verb, do. Okay, one of the reasons I like doer better than do is because doer is James' word. That's the word he actually uses. And it's kind of a a, a catchword for James. It's his signature trademark. In fact, the word doer pops up just six times in the entire New Testament. Four of them are right here in the epistle to James. So you wouldn't hang out with James for any length of time before he looked at you and said, hey, dude, be a doer, okay? Doer. That's James' favorite word. Unfortunately, our English translation kind of misses that a bit here. But the other reason I like doer is doer talks about who you are. Okay, in the core of your being, you're a doer. We be doers. Not just that we occasionally do what God's word says. Let me illustrate this distinction. 
Okay, these days when I want cardio uh, uh, exercise, I get on the elliptical machine because my, my knees don't take pounding the pavement running like they used to. Now, I used to run. But back in the days when I ran and people would ask me, oh, are you a runner? My response was, nope, I'm not a runner. And the reason I would say that is because I looked at what I did and I would run like three times a week, three miles at most at a shot. And I'd compare that with people who, whom I considered to be runners who are out there pounding the pavement every single day, logging mile after mile, entering competitions, 10K, marathon competitions. I'd say, that's a runner. So do I run? Yes. Am I a runner? Never been a runner. See the distinction? Are you a doer of God's word or are you someone who just occasionally, sporadically, half-heartedly does the word of God? Big difference. James says he wants us to be doers. Doer means you're committed to obeying God's word. Whenever you read the Bible, whenever you listen to it in a sermon, whenever you study it in a community group, you're the sort of person who's not satisfied until you've determined how you're going to put into practice what you've just learned. And this is where, where James transitions to a helpful analogy here so we won't forget this point. It's the mirror analogy. So let me read it to you in the next verse, verse 23. James says, anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror. Okay, you want to underline or circle or star that word mirror. And after looking at himself, he goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. The mirror analogy. Have I ever told you why I shave my head? Okay, this is kind of embarrassing. Okay, uh, years ago, seven, eight years ago, when I used to have hair, uh, I bought some cheapo clippers at Target, and I would always do my own hair. And those cheapo clippers came with a number of attachments, combs that you would snap on, and they would allow you to choose what length you want to leave your hair. And so I would choose the comb. It was like attachment number five that would leave me one to two inches of hair. And I would very, very religiously, every, every week, I would you know, clip my own hair. But Sue didn't like it. And as you're going to see, this whole illustration leads to it being her fault, you know, what happened. <laughs> Because as I would trim my hair, I would be looking in the bathroom mirror at, you know, what I'm doing, and the hair would fly everywhere. It'd be on the sink. It'd be on the floor. I just would make a mess. And so she would say, would you please duck your head in the sink? So I started ducking my head in the sink as I was trimming my hair, no longer looking in the mirror. Well, one day I was deep in thought as I went to trim my hair, deep in thought. And so I forgot to put attachment number five onto the clippers. Okay, I just used the bare knuckles, cheapo clippers from Target. And I'm working away, I'm thinking about something, and I look up. The left half of my head looks like Bruce Willis, okay? And so I say, oh, crud. Sue says, I, I said something worse, but... And then I said, Sue! And so Sue comes running up the stairs, and she looks at me, and she says, well, you know, what only a caring wife can, could say, she said, what do you expect me to do about it? <laughs> well, the 
there was, there was nothing she could do. There was nothing I could do about it. You can't put the hair back. So I did the only thing I could do. I shaved the other side of my head. And then I decided I like this low maintenance approach and I've been doing it ever since. But here's the point. It all started with a failure to look in the mirror. Okay, it all began with a failure to look in the mirror. James tells us that God's word is like a mirror. God's word gives us a true reflection of who we are. God's word exposes our character, our attitudes, our behaviors. And it does this, don't miss this, it does this so that we can make adjustments to what we see. It does this so that we can make adjustments to what we see. Now, friends, there are two kinds of ways that we could look in a mirror. You know, one way is to just give it a quick cursory glance. Every once in a while, like I was doing with cutting my hair. That's not a very good idea, James says in verses 23 and 24. That, that person who does that never makes necessary improvements in their life. They look into the Word, read it briefly, you know, do a flyby in a community group, but don't make any improvements in their lives. There's another way to look into the Word, James says in verse 25. Look at your Bible if you would. Circle a couple of words here. Circle the word intently in the middle of the verse. And then circle the phrase continues in. Continues in God's word. Is that how you look into the mirror of God's word? Do you do it intently? Do, do you do it continuously? You stay in the text until you see what improvements need to be made in your life. In other words, you're committed to obedience. Now, before I wrap up this second point, a commitment to obeying God's word, just a footnote. I want you to notice how James refers to God's word in verse 25. Okay, so look at your Bible, verse 25. James doesn't refer to it here as the word. That's the expression he's been using up to this point. The word, the word, the word. What does he call the Bible in verse 25? If you see it, call it out. What does he call it? The perfect law. The perfect law that gives what? that gives freedom. I love this thought. When we do what the Bible tells us to do, we don't feel restricted. We don't feel boxed in. We feel liberated. Let me ask you, is there some directive that you've encountered in God's word that you have been reluctant to obey because you're certain that it would rob you of your freedom in some way? You're not going to do that. Give up your freedom? No. You're not going to give 10% of your paycheck to the Lord? No. You're not going to limit what movies you put before your eyes? You're going to rent what you want. You're not going to forfeit some of your free time on a Saturday morning to attend a second Saturday and serve the poor, the needy in our community? You're not going to forgive that person who's offended you, hurt you? You're not going to commit to gathering every weekend to worship. You're, you're not going to share your family with a foster child. I mean, you've got to protect your freedom. And James would say, you don't get it, do you? See, obedience to God's word is what brings freedom. J just do it and you'll discover freedom. You know, even in the past week or two, I look at my life and if, if we had the time and if I were willing to be really, really, really vulnerable, I could 
give you instances in my life where there are things I resist doing, I know I should do in obedience to God's word, but I don't want to give up my freedom in that area. And yet, as I give it up, what I discover time and again is it brings liberty, brings freedom. Here's the third aspect of doing God's word. Cases, some case studies here of reverencing God's word. I love the story. I heard it years ago, so it, you know, it's, it's a bit dated, but I love the story of the, the pastor who's out tooling around the neighborhood and decides to drop in spontaneously on one of the families in his church, and so they meet him at the door, and they welcome him into their family room, and they're chit-chatting over a glass of iced tea, and they're, they're doing their best to impress their pastor with how much they love God and how much they love the church and how much they love the Bible. In fact, at one point in the conversation, the wife turns to her little boy, or her second grader, Jake, and he says, Jake, go get our copy of that book we love so much. And Jake comes back in a minute with the Sears catalog. <laughs> okay. James wrote this epistle to a group of people, some of whom prided themselves on how deeply religious they were, how much they reverenced God's word. And so in the closing verses of chapter 1, J James says, let me tell you what real religion looks like. Let, let me tell you how genuine reverence for God's word is demonstrated in a person's life. And so James describes for us in verses 26 and 27 three cases of reverencing God's word. Let me point out before we look at these, reverencing God's word is not measured by how many Bible studies you attend. Okay, reverencing God's word is not measured by knowing where to find the book of Leviticus in your Bible. Reverencing God's word is not measured by how many verses you have underlined in your NIV study Bible. So how do we measure reverence for God's word? James is going to give us three examples of what it looks like. Let me read it to you. Verses 26 and 27. See if you can pick out the three cases. Verse 26. Those who consider themselves religious. Okay, you think you got the right, the, 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 the real thing? Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress. And to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. What does reverencing God's word looks, look like? Well, James answers that question with three case studies, three examples. Before we take a closer look at them, let me just note, he chooses three very balanced examples. In fact, if you look at these and, and you say, well, I got one out of the three, or I'm doing two out of the three, James would say, well, I got you. I included a, a variety here to show you an area in your life where perhaps you're not obeying, you're not reverencing God's word. So what is the first one? He said, if you really reverence God, God's word, verse 26, you'll keep a tight rein on your tongue. Keep a tight rein. Don't you like that imagery? In other words, your tongue is like a wild stallion. Just think of all the nasty forms of speech that have a way of bursting from between our lips, like a horse without a bridle. There's gossip, lies, criticism, profanity, boasting, sarcasm. Well, God's word, especially the Old Testament book of Proverbs, has a lot to say about the importance of controlling our words, putting a rein on our mouths. 
In fact, when we get to James chapter 3, what we're going to discover is that the whole first half of James 3 deals with this topic of controlling our mouths. That's how big a deal it is to James. When we get to that passage, Sue's going to preach that message. It's going to be a Mother's Day message, and she's going to relate it to parenting. Okay. So it's impossible to say, I reverence God's word if you don't keep a tight rein on your tongue, because that's one of the things God's word teaches you to do. Now you're saying, well, I got that one down. I mean, I, you know, there's no pollution coming out of my mouth. Well, look at the second evidence of reverencing God's, God's word. Verse 27, you look after widows and orphans. Now, now the widows and orphans combo is one that is mentioned frequently in the Old Testament. It's just a succinct way of saying any kind of needy person. You know, for example, orphans and widows. So what are we to do, according to James, with these needy people? What are we to do? Pray for them at mealtimes? And God bless all those people who don't have the same amount of food on their table as we do? Amen? Is that what James says? Write out a check to a local crisis pregnancy center or homeless shelter. Is that what James says to do here? It's a good idea. It's not what he says to do, though. Bring them to church with you. Bring a needy person to church where they'll find fellowship and be enfolded. So, good idea. But that's not what James says here. What he says is to look after widows and orphans. The verb look after conveys a sense of personal involvement and doing something that requires time and effort on your part. Have you ever shown up for a second Saturday at Christ Community Church? Second Saturday of every month. We divvy people up into teams. We put you on a bus for half a day. You go out and you serve the needy in the community. Now, you don't have to do it through Second Saturday at Christ Community Church. If you connect with desperately needy people in some other way, that's great. But our sense is, living in suburbia, many of us are, are insulated from those kinds of people, and that's why we do Second Saturdays. And I would encourage you, at some point, it doesn't have to be a monthly thing, but maybe once a quarter you participate. Definitely on Super Second Saturday, June 8th you plan to participate. And if you're in a community group, we're encouraging every community group to turn out their people for that super second Saturday, caring for the poor, the desperate, the needy. Because if you don't do it, you don't reverence God's word. I don't care how much of a Bible banger you are. If you don't do it, you don't reverence God's word. Not if you don't come to second Saturday. If you don't find an avenue for meeting the needs of poor and needy people, desperate people. Now, there's a third thing that James says here. So you're thinking, well, you know, no profanity coming out of my mouth. I got the first one down. I show up for second Saturdays. I got the second one down. He gives a third one, a little different twist, end of verse 27. And you keep yourself from being polluted by the world. If you reverence God's word, you keep yourself from being polluted by the world. What does this mean? You know, I think most of us could probably figure out what it means. What books do you read? What jokes do you laugh at? What TV shows do you watch? What websites do you visit? What movies do you rent? How much alcohol do you consume? How far do you go physically on a date? I could keep going, but my point is obvious. Moral pollution is all around us, and many of us are going with the flow. 
We're making little to no effort to keep ourselves from being polluted by the world. And James says, then you don't really reverence God's word because you can't get very far in reading the Bible without coming across something that tells you to strive for personal purity, personal holiness in your life. It's all over the book. A couple of weeks ago, I was at a Bulls game. Have you ever seen the dance team, the Lovables? Okay. They come out during timeouts and whatever. A group of beautiful women in very skimpy outfits gyrating to loud music. Great entertainment. Unless you're trying to obey what James says right here. To keep yourself from being polluted by the world. Unless you're trying to obey Jesus, who told us boys especially, I think, if your eye causes you to lust, what should you do? Gouge it out and throw it away. I didn't see a lot of eyeballs getting thrown on the court (laughs) that night. So every time they came out there, you know, I, I had a choice. I could look down there or I could count the number of championship banners are hanging from the ceiling of the United Center. You know, which is actually what I did that night, and I wish I could tell you that I always did that kind of thing. I don't, but James is saying if you reverence God's word, that should be your knee-jerk reaction. Keep yourself from being polluted by the world. Well, we've covered a lot of ground in this message today, haven't we? You know, there are conditions for hearing God's word. You can't do God's word unless you meet the conditions for hearing it. And then we talked about a commitment to obeying God's word. When you, you see what's in the text, you've got to figure out, now. how can I put this into practice in my life? You never walk away from the Bible without some intent of adjusting your life according to what you've seen in the mirror. And then we talked about three specific cases for reverencing God's word. But the, the bottom line is this. When it comes to the Bible, just do it. 